What happens when a legendary comic genius battles the New York art world circa the 90s and early 2000s? It's a cataclysm that's admired by rich men with fancy mustaches and no pants what? Okay, okay, maybe it's not that. I don't know what I'm saying. In this episode, I'll jump into a curious world of art populated by assholes of all stripes, from creative assholes to the parasitic assholes that live off those creative assholes. And Steve Martin. Well... And then we'll find out the answer to the age-old question, where is fancy bread? In the art or in the ed? Huh? Of course, of course, that's not how that goes at all. And Steve Martin's probably not an asshole. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one. Fire. Steve who? I hear you ask as the theme fades out. Steve Martin, of course, known for his stand-up comedy and roles in many awesome movies like The Three Amigos, The Jerk, uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which should be uh, in the Congressional Film Archive, I think. Uh, the movie Parenthood, uh, My Blue Heaven, he's in that one too. Uh, the Man with Two Brains, and many, many more amazing movies. He's also known for his award-winning music and his guest spots on Saturday Night Live back in the 70s, I think it was. And they were only guest appearances, by the way. And above all, he's known for having white hair with non-matching eyebrows. Welcome, by the way, to Elton Reads a Book a Week, the only podcast in the world that is always one book away from satisfaction. Yeah. My name is Elton, and I read a book a week. So let me skip the usual pandering for your contributions and for you to follow the podcast on social media and all that stuff. And let me get right into the episode. Why? Uh, because I like to shake things up. Plus, I may or may not have left my car's headlights on. So uh, where was I? Oh, Right. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, while slapping uh, Steve Martin with the moniker of comic genius might be debatable, um, the term genius isn't. He's a genius, or at least he's smart enough to know if he is or not. While he himself, the man, is deserving of an episode all on his own, I don't have that book. No, sir. The book I have is a novel he wrote. Yes, He's an author, too. Doesn't that make you feel like you've wasted your life a little? Me, too. So let's check out this extremely funny smart man's book and try not to cry ourselves into a sulking, tear-soaked heap of sorrow. The book this time around is An Object of Beauty by Steve Martin. It's a book about an object that is described many times by many people as being beautiful. Thank you for listening, everybody. Have a good night. Oh, if only it were that easy. No, 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 no. It's actually about a guy who talks about a girl whose job it is to talk about art and then sell the art. And I mean, and I mean, really, really talk about art. You know, in the highbrow wine glass held with a pinky in the air while judgmentally looking at paintings over the rim of the eyeglasses kind of talk. A kind of talk that is both fascinating and intimidating all at the same time. Because no one, and I mean no one, wants to be in a room filled with people like that. And not and not know what the hell is going on. 
Would you say this piece is more of a love letter to Dada or simply a crude simpleton's derivative theft and infantile bastardization of the portrait of Cezanne? Yeah, right. Right. No, well, I mean, there's a monkey, right? There's a monkey. Uh, he, I mean, he looks, he looks like it's, it's waving. Like, it looks like he's waving. I don't know if it's a he. I mean, I guess, I guess Dada, it, it would, I mean, he could be waving to his dad. So it's, I mean, uh, wait, wait, was this, was this code for something? Did I just, did I just agree to sex with a monkey's dad? Wait, go back to the first thing you said. Feeling stupid is stupid. And I shortened the title of the piece I mentioned back there, which is a real thing. It's actually titled Nature Morte, Portrait of Cezanne, Portrait of Renoir, Portrait of Rembrandt. It's a real thing. You can look that up. I wanted to clarify that, uh, that that was the real name of the painting um, or the work of art. Uh, I wanted to clarify that before my inbox uh, got filled with art-loving internet folk that want me dead. Because everyone knows art lovers are some of the most passionate, appreciative, brutally violent, bloodthirsty people on the planet. Their emails are terrifying. Just hostile. They they use the they use the biggest words. Like seven syllables big. I'm kidding, of course. They don't use words, they use art. No. The art world is a very, very weird one. On one hand, you have art that is rich in beauty and wonderful beyond words and depth, and it's amazing. The likes of which will never happen again. Then on the other hand, you can unknowingly buy a shit fake painting made with house paint by some jerk-off in their garage in New Jersey last week, and you could pay $40 million for it. Needless to say, it takes a brave, suspicious, yet appreciative soul to wade into those pretentious oil paint slicked waters. Fortunately, Steve Martin is one of those people. He loves art. He buys art, or at least he used to, and he digs the whole fine art world. Uh, and the art world in general. So much so, he made it the setting for this novel. Wait, before we get too far, let's talk about who Steve Martin is, because he's fucking amazing. And let's talk about why he should be worshipped like the all-knowing god of comedy, who also plays the banjo and can make you laugh by stabbing himself in the eye with a fork that has a cork on it. Fuck, he's, he's done so much with his life. Why am, I so, why am I so behind? Damn it. So, who is he? Well, Steve Martin was born... Wait, don't... Don't roll your eyes at me. Not everyone knows who he is, okay? I have to do my due diligence here. Everyone isn't as versed on pop culture icons as you are, apparently. So just bear with me, okay? I know. I know you're smart. But let's let's catch everyone up, okay? Let's get everybody on the same page because <laughs> it's a book. Besides, I think you think you know, but maybe you only think you know but don't know because does anyone know what they don't know? So maybe you don't know how much you don't know, you know? You can listen back to that later and follow the logic. It's there. I checked. Steve Martin was born ridiculously smart and talented on August 14th, 1945 in Waco, Texas, where they set things on fire. To Mary Lee and Glenn Vernon Martin, a real estate salesman 
an aspiring actor, and oddly enough, the grandson of Ezekiel Thaddeus Martin, the inventor of the Martin Woodchipper and founder of the long-defunct company, uh, Martin Woodchippers, Inc. You may have heard of him, as the, uh, the company he founded went under in 1909 after he not only invented the woodchipper in his barn in Ossipee, New Hampshire, but he was the first to be convicted of murder for using it on a person. The company went belly up soon after, obviously, but not before he sold his wood chipper patent to Leonard Andrus, business partner of John Deere, to pay for his legal fees. Um, anyway, I mean, if, if you look it up, you'll understand. There, there are some pretty gruesome pictures online. I'm not, I'm not sure why he killed his wife. Uh, I didn't have time to dig into it, but it's, I mean, it's only a Google search away. I saw the pictures though. It's some horrific shit. They're black and white and just, wow. I mean, why the police are holding up a foot like that is, it's just bizarre. Like, like it's some prize fish they caught or something. It's, it's actually pretty gross. Why they're smiling and pointing. I don't know. Just, it's just crazy. I mean, wow. Uh, wow. Anyway. The non-murdering Martins moved to L.A. when Steve was five. He was raised in Inglewood and Garden Grove, California. First in Inglewood with his sister, then Garden Grove. Uh, later, Steve actually wrote an article about himself for the Los Angeles Magazine in December of 2010. And he wrote, We lived in Hollywood, and my father worked at the Callboard Theater on Melrose Place. I went to see him in a play there once, of course. I didn't understand what the play was. I was too young, but I watched him perform. And during World War II in the United Kingdom, uh, that was the quote. Anyway, during World War II in the United Kingdom, Martin's father had appeared in a production of Our Town. He expressed, uh, his dad expressed uh, his affection through gifts. Martin's father was stern and not emotionally open to Steve. He was proud, but critical. And with Martin later recalling that in his teens, his feelings for his father were mostly ones of hatred. There was a lot of tension between him and his father, but, I mean, come on. That can be said for most people. Uh, he had a pretty average childhood for the most part. You know, going to the park with friends. He went out to movies. Uh, he had barbecues in the backyard, you know, having fun tossing squirrels into the wood chipper. Just regular, all-American stuff they did. You know, just, just regular stuff everyone did. So did I get you with the wood chipper stuff? That wasn't real. None of that was true. But, I mean, you knew, right? Did you? Tell me you knew. Okay, if you if I did get you, let me know on Twitter at uh, Elton Reads A Lot. See, that's a plug. All right. Steve, <laughs> Jesus. Steve's not related to anyone who invented a wood chipper. That would, uh, that would seriously shape a person's worldview, wouldn't it? I mean, that would probably fuck up a few generations of your family if that happened. I mean, if... You're related to a historical footnote of murderous proportions. I mean, I would think it would mess you up. Anyway, it, it wasn't true. So, for real, on to Steve's first steps towards fulfilling his destiny. Let me know if I got you with that. That's okay. Anyway, Steve wrote, My first job was at Disneyland selling guidebooks. I was 10. Then I worked in the magic shop until I was 18. See, Disneyland opened near his family's home in 1955, and his experiences would change and define his life. Selling guidebooks on the weekends and full-time during his school's summer break, Steve saw the park as an explorer might see a new land for the first time. Steve writes, Disneyland was literally like living in heaven. 
You could go to Frontierland or Tomorrowland. But to me, they weren't lands. They weren't fantasy. They were a kind of reality paradise. There, he found two mentors, Jim Barlow, uh, who performed sleight of hand magic at Merlin's Magic Shop, and at the Golden Horseshoe Review, Wally Bogue, a comic who made funny balloon animals. From them came the raw material for Martin's stand-up act. Given the inspiration from his mentors, uh, Steve's notoriously driven personality took over. Uh, what he learned propelled him to perfect every aspect of it. From childhood, he knew he wanted to do comedy and that he could be good at it if he applied himself with the discipline and dedication of a Shaolin monk. One of his happiest memories was practicing card tricks all day at Merlin's. At 15, he had the maturity to realize that a comedy career wasn't a matter of, I'm funny, now I'll be funny in public. A disciplined apprenticeship was the prerequisite to achieving overnight stardom. That was a quote from a Time Magazine article, by the way. He knew about the long-haul work slog at 15, and he fucking bit the bullet and took it on? That's insane. When I was 15, I was two years into a smoking habit that only partially broke up my bid to become the welterweight champion masturbator of the world. The hardest work I put in was procuring hustler magazines from gas station magazine racks. I sure as shit wasn't working seriously on anything that might lead to an actual career. Jesus fucking Christ. All that time just wasted. Enjoyably wasted. But, I mean, to be fair, I did see a lot of good porn, though. A lot of classic porn. A lot of, a lot of good. What, what the hell does that do except make me want to get more porn? Sadder still, I can only partly see where it all went wrong for me. Yeah. It took Steve another 15, another 15 years to make it big. That's a dedication to a craft right there. Fuck, I wish I was that disciplined. You know what? You know what? You know, I'll start tomorrow, right? I'll start, yeah, right after I do absolutely nothing but fail at doing anything at all today. Damn it. Steve was part of a comedy troupe at Knott's Berry Farm. He studied philosophy at Cal State at Long Beach and played banjo, which is another of his tireless passions. He played with a guitarist, Mason Williams, uh, who had an instrumental pop hit called Classical Gas, um, which is a song any fan of indie movies has probably heard at least once. Um, I'll play a snippet of it here for context so you know what I'm talking about. Just a little bit. Here you go. Some song, right? For some orchestral instrumentation in a with a terrible title. It, it gets you amped though. It makes you feel like like stripping naked and slathering yourself with grape jelly and stealing a car and then setting it on fire while you drive it through a strip mall liquor store. Woo! All right, wait. That's is that just me that wants to 
you know what? Uh, never mind. It's been a rough week. Mason Williams helped him get a writing job on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, which, if you look it up on YouTube, is actually a pretty funny show. Uh, he won an Emmy on that show. Martin, uh, Steve Martin won an Emmy on that show at 23. Goddamn overachievers always winning awards for fucking working hard. What do they get off? Fuck, I feel bad about myself. Steve elaborates on his time writing for TV. He said, in 1967, the biggest change in my life happened in L.A. I got a job as a writer on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. It was magic to me that you could be working in a folk club for nothing. And then the next day, you're working at CBS for writer scale, which was a fortune. That's that's very L.A. He also wrote uh, for many other shows, including the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. That was in 1969. And the Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour in 1971. Just in case you wanted to know. What he wanted to do, though, was stand-up. Stand-up comedy, that is. I'm pretty sure he could stand-up at any time. He was not uh, in any way uh, hobbled. or um, I don't want to say crippled, because that's bad. That, that seems like a bad thing. And he wanted to do stand-up comedy. In the, and in the late 60s and early 70s, stand-up comedy back then was at a tipping point. It's about to go off in a weird direction. The days of jokes like, rape my wife, please... Nope. Nope. That's not the joke. Fucking wrong. Nope. Take my wife, please. There it is. Those days were over. Lenny Bruce and his kind had used their expletive-fueled joke-telling to partially flush that kind of jokey shit almost down the toilet. And what was left? Uh, a combined Lenny style with the joke-setup punchline style with something else entirely. Call it... Let's call it awkward deconstructionist style. It challenged the very notion of making people laugh. Andy Kaufman's stand-up set where he lip-synced to the Mighty Mouse theme. Uh, that's a perfect, That's I mean, it's an extreme example, but stuff like that. That's what we're talking about. Uh, if you don't know what that is, look up Andy Kaufman, Mighty Mouse theme. You'll get um, a shitty version of it. It's kind of hard to find, which is weird for the internet. Anyway. The, the original one, anyway, from Saturday Night Live. It's kind of hard to get. Anyway, look that up if you want to see what that is. But if if they were the, if Andy Kaufman style stuff were the highbrow art house gourmet version of awkward deconstructionism comedy, Steve Martin was the McDonald's version. He gained national fame pretty quickly playing the over-the-top buffoon. What if there were no punchlines? Asked Steve Martin in his autobiography born standing up which i have to get but don't have he also said what if there were no indicators what if i created tension and never released it what if i headed for a climax but all i delivered was an anti-climax this thinking leads him to develop his distinctive style of stand-up almost an anti-stand-up comedy that would make him a fucking star of comedy in the 1970s. Though, what kicked him into the upper echelons of comedic comedies, comedy, comedies, comics, were his frequent guest appearances on Saturday Night Live with his wild and crazy guy character he did alongside Dan Aykroyd. They were called the uh, fun, the Fussstruck Brothers, uh, if you're wondering. Feel free to Google that shit. It's hilarious. Uh, F-E-S-T-R-U-N-K uh, Brothers. 
With exposure now to a national audience via his SNL appearances and stand-up shows, Martin taught an entire generation the notion of distant, cool irony by popularizing things like the air quotes gesture. Did you ever wonder where that came from? It came from Steve fucking Martin, motherfucker. Yeah. Why they why they do it now? It's him. Okay. After that was a string of comedy albums that went platinum. Platinum means each album sold over one million copies. Over a million. What am I doing? However, working obsessively hard on being a comedy rock star type wasn't the only thing Steve was working obsessively hard on. And yeah, I realize I said hard on twice. I never claimed to have any shame. Don't pin that on me. As I said, he effortlessly moved from stand-up comedy to movies with so much ease you'd think there were laxatives involved. He transitioned to film because he saw the writing on the wall as far as the stand-up comedy went. When you're so popular, your audience shouts out the end of your bits before you get there, you know it's time to bow out. I mean, I guess. You'll never generate material fast enough to compensate for something like that. But such is life when you're an extraordinarily talented comedian, TV writer, songsmith, fucking genius that overachieves and is awesome at every fucking thing. What the fuck have I done with my stupid life? God damn it. I mean, Steve Martin's used toilet paper has probably written a PhD thesis on the history of European asswiping practices, which primarily focuses on medieval Scandinavia and is currently submitting its dissertation regarding their preference for the use of bare hands over toilet paper. Fuck. Did you get all that? His shit-stained toilet paper is smarter than me. I think you got it. And what did medieval Scandinavians use to wipe their asses? Bare hands just seem par for the course in a world where piss and shit run free in the streets, you know? In that situation, what are you losing with, with using bare hands, really? Along the way, from comic superstar to Hollywood movie star, Steve Martin doubled up putting all of us to shame by authoring a few books. Because when you think it's safe to work in a field Steve Martin isn't in, he will come by and slap your stupid aspirations with his mega brain and kill them. As it would happen, when your hair turns white prematurely, it's confirmation that you've made a deal with the devil for beating the rest of us at being unbelievably productive, and you can magically gain another eight hours in your day to have an entire other careers. Because that's science, right? Sorry. I mean, maybe not. It's the theocratic science-tology. Regarding his book, An Object of Beauty, published in 2010, he said, If I had tried to write it 20 years ago, I would have suffered. I suffered a long time to get where I am, to be able to write it, sort of knowingly, and have the confidence to write it. He told that to Reuters in 2010, 11 fucking years ago. It still blows my mind. Time passing, that is. And that's weird to say, but it does. Why is it that I feel like... Anytime I mentioned, uh, anytime mentioned after the late nineties is something that just happened not too long ago. It's like my brain can't process the gap between then and now, or that as time goes on, that gap is widening. It's just bizarre. It, I don't know. It's, it's weird. It's me, I guess. So what did he have the confidence to write? Why shouldn't he have suffered for making us all feel like worthless chumps? Sorry, I'm projecting yet again, like I've been doing. I apologize. Sorry, Steve. What is this book about? 
The novel is about Lacey Yeager, a captivating and ambitious woman nearing 40, but whose life the narrator of the book Daniel recounts uh, by starting in her early 20s. Daniel is a bit of a bore and a bit player whose ambition is, quote, to write about art with effortless clarity, unquote, which means... I don't know what the fuck that means. That's what that means. Groomed at Sotheby's and hungry to keep climbing the social and career ladders put before her, Lacey charms men and women, old and young, rich and even richer, with her magnetic charisma and liveliness. She's also intelligent, independent of mine, and she's an easy lay. Well, as you come to find out, only some of the time, really. Not. I think it's more like she fucks when it suits her, um, and when she feels like it, you know, like a actual like a person does the real questions are will she rise to dominate the new york art scene and vanquish the many foes and friends she makes and chants and seduces along the way will she make an everlasting mark on it all will daniel become the literary mouthpiece of the art world whose opinion can make or break an entire industry will they live out their dreams of reaching the upper echelons of art's exclusive trend-setting gatekeepers or become the architects of their own hellish nightmares will there be faces bloodied in the war to rule all of art will there be an aztec style sacrifice to zod to maintain status will that become an art style and movement in and of itself will there be blood will daniel drink her milkshake will daniel drink your milkshake have i completely lost the thread yeah i think i did a little bit um, yeah for those playing at home, that uh, last bit was a reference to the 2007 film Will There Be Blood, in which, spoilers, Daniel Day-Lewis drinks milkshakes with long straws from across rooms to the surprise and dismay of the cast of Downton Abbey sitting nearby. It sounds confusing because it is. You should check it out. It was nominated for and won many awards and Oscars and stuff, and I've lied about what's it about, so you should actually watch the real movie. It's really good. I drink your milkshake. <laughs> anyway, to find out what happens to Lacey and Daniel, get the book. For me, it was pretty okay. The story was moderately surprising with a touch of a twist. Well, multiple little twists. I'm not going to lie. It was good indeed, but just not my thing. That doesn't mean it was bad. It, it, it wasn't. It was really well written. Um, there are interesting bits about art in there and paintings that I, I thought were great. For instance, uh, quote, she learned to precisely tap a painting with the back of her finger. A hard, stiff canvas indicated the picture had been relined, usually a, a warning sign about a painting's poor condition. See, now when I take paintings off the walls of galleries and museums and I can, I can tell them now why I'm punching them so hard. What really kept me in the book was the world it was set in. Which may be Steve's favorite part, too. He, he's he been quoted as saying, Just for the record, I love the art world. I like everything about it. Except, you'll see in the book, art speak, which is slang for esoteric art writing, which is impossible to parse or understand. It's probably the thing I attack most in the book. And it's true, he does. And I actually agree with him on, the, on it being the esoteric art speak being shit. I've found that uh, it's annoying at times when I find myself, you know, tripping down an art rabbit hole on the internet or just studying or, or reading books about it. That there's a, a lot of there's a lot of assholes um, 
And th- those assholes I talked about at the top of the episode, they're rife in the book and, and, in, and in those websites. And Steve does make fun of them, which is great with lines like, quote, an artist who painted a face was now playing with the idea of portraiture or exploring push-pull aesthetics or toying with contradictions like menacing slash playful. But he or she was never, ever just painting a face, unquote. Still, art and the art world in general have always fascinated me. Just the ups and downs and the insane way things are valued and devalued and and how they assess that and the, and the people that move the art around and evaluate it and how they sell it and how that all works out, trading, and it's just... The cumbersome push and pull of what is and isn't considered important, popular, and what art is in general, it's like a vast oceanic community that's always moving and churning. See, Mr. Martin here loves the art world for much the same reason. He said, quote, I've been on the periphery of it. I mean, not being a dealer or artist myself, and I've always been enchanted by it. I think it's fast, it's intriguing, there's crime, there's fakery, there's forgery, And there's also, by the way, very decent people, unquote. And from the book, he says this about collectors, such as himself, quote, These objects, with cooperating input from the collector's mind, were transformed into things that healed. Collectors thought this one artwork would make everything right, would complete the jigsaw of their lives, would satisfy them eternally, unquote. He's not wrong. He captures a lot of it in the book. As Lacey moves from the basement of Sotheby's to eventually having her own gallery, she rubs shoulders with the wealthy, the eccentric, the artists, and the characters that buy up and then upsell and then auction and, pr- and promote all of it. That's the part I enjoyed. So to celebrate the world that Steve got me dreaming about and thinking about, I'll try to tell you a little bit about the art world that was really happening at the time he sets his novel in. Because it was a very important time. And... I'm not giving you this book for free. Buy it. Books are great. Read more. Read them all. Like, okay, so I thought I'd elaborate on the art world of the late 90s and early 2000s a bit, as it's some pretty transitional shit as far as art and just the world in general. I mean, it was the time of dead Cobains and Clinton blowjobs and young terrorists learning to fly planes wrong on purpose. Is that too soon? It's been 20 years. Uh, I'll move on. Anyway, I'll move on before you start throwing things. During that time, or slightly before it, you know, the greatest art heist in recorded history took place. In Boston, at 1.24 a.m. on March 18, 1990, two men dressed as police officers walked into Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. They overpowered some pretty fucking stupid-ass guards and made off with 13 works. Valued. At $500 million. These works have never been recovered. I mention this theft not only because it's mentioned very briefly in the book, but also because it's a good touchstone of what was going on in the art world at the time. Uh, Old world artwork was racing out of the price range of just about everyone, except the super rich and corporations to buy his investments. This, of course, piqued the interest of people looking to provide those paintings and pieces of art at a premium. And sometimes that meant dressing up like a cop and stealing the shit. There's a really good documentary series on Netflix right now that talks about this very crime. That's what the whole thing is about. You should check it out. That's not an ad, by the way, because if Netflix uh, were paying me uh, and buying up airtime in this podcast, I'd be recording it in a soundproofed kitchen. 
instead of the corner of this non-soundproofed one. Steve Martin actually commented about this, well, kind of, uh, when asked if he still collected art and uh, why he's cooled on it as of late. He said, uh, every collector eventually gets priced out as inflation takes hold, he said. A really great painting today costs over $20 million, and he ain't lying. The high demand for old school art led to astronomical pricing and an art world vacuum kind of situation. The dot-com boom made millionaires out of a fuck ton of Silicon Valley nerds and their investors, and everyone wanted to up their cultural cred. And in a world that still saw them as extras from a Revenge of the Nerds movie, art and its clout were a good way to get that cred. Plus, depending on what the art was and who made it, it could be sold later for a pretty hefty fucking profit. So, wins all around, right? Being that the old masters were spiraling upward into way, way too expensive for anyone to nab without doing it at gunpoint territory, and were only going to get more exclusive and expensive, they turned to modern art instead, a lot of which was being introduced by living artists at the time. This was the late 90s art world. Newly rich folk with money to burn, dumping that money into the raging fire of a ready and willing art scene. New artists were made famous almost overnight. Artists like Andre Serrano, an American photographer and artist who came to prominence with controversial work like Piss Christ. They were setting records for their contemporary work. Oh, what is Piss Christ, you ask? I'm not going to make a joke here because, well... It's interesting enough on its own. Piss Christ is a red-tinged photograph of a crucifix submerged in a glass container of what was purported to be the artist's urine. Yep, a photo of a small plastic crucifix in a cup of piss. It made headlines at the time because, as all things with Jesus and piss would, it pissed off a lot of people. Yeah, that pun may or may not have been intended. I just don't have a lot of colorful words for piss on hand at the moment. Wait, not piss on hand. Words on hand for piss. You get the idea. People flip the fuck out because nothing, and I mean nothing, peeves off heavily religious people like sinking their deities in pee-pee. To add insult to injury, their work was sold for $277,000 in 1999 beating its original estimated value of $20,000 to $30,000. Personally, I can see from both sides. The piece did its job, I guess. It got people thinking, and it started a conversation. It was a screaming conversation that no one could really hear each other's sides or even themselves, but still. The noise was made, so, you know, so there. Regardless, it's still just an artist who may or may not be wrong or right in doing so. See, it's... It's at times like this, you have to wonder what, what Jesus would have done. Jesus, hey, how are you, man? I, look, just a quick question about your feelings on this piece, uh, this, this photograph called Piss Christ. It's a picture of a figurine of, of a crucified you submerged in, in a cup of the artist's piss, hence the name. Um, it's, it's been raising some eyebrows, and uh, some of your more vocal fans have, have had a strong word or two to say about it. Would you care to comment at all on that? I was crucified. Crucified. Do you know do you know what that yeah. is? No. Do you? It's, it's well I was crucified. 
Do you understand? Yeah. Do you understand what I mean? No. Do, you, do you understand what happened? No. I was. They. They. they, they, they no, I understand. They I mean, nailed me. I can see. They nailed me to. I, I, they no, nailed I me to chunks how, of wood, man. I, I to I wood. See how that? Uh, do you my my wrist? No, my, no, they. I, they. We, we, my wrist. No, we, 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 feet we hammered. Whole, hammered. The whole world. Hammered yeah, onto a, the wood. Onto the. Do you? Do you see the? Do you see the? Do you see what I'm what I'm pointing? Where I'm pointing? It was there. It was in there. It was painful. Painful. Why? Why would they do that? Why? Why it was. It was intense. It was no, intensely. They, yeah. No. It was intensely no, painful. There was so much blood. I can see. It was so much I blood. That, it hurt so bad. No, you. No, you have yeah, no yeah, idea. Yeah, you have no, no, I, I died. Uh, we, I died. We Did they tell you yeah, that? The, the Did whole, they tell you I died of the whole world? I died. The whole world. I died. There was so yeah, much pain. We, we all know. I can't even it's describe a, it. I can't. Oh my god. And then there was this. And then. And then there was this crown. They just. Yeah. The crown. They jammed. It's like they jammed it. It was on my. I mean. They jammed it. My head. But do you know what? Do you know about the crown? Did they tell you about? It was. It was thorns, man. It was. Made of thorns, uh, all is, thorns. Uh, yeah, no, Someone they, had to make that. No, they I, they I put it, they put no, time into sure. making that. Sure. Yeah, Crafted the pain hat. That, that that, is a pain hat. That's right. A hat for pain. That's a pain hat for me. They made yeah, that for no, me. Yeah, that's some serious that's, detailed yes, found, dislike, yes, man. There was craftsmanship involved. I, 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 I mean, that's the worst friend. kind of hat I, for I, anybody, I by the no, way. Right. I just want right, you to know, right. everyone that's, to know, thorns geez, are the worst yeah, kind of hat for no, anyone. That's horrific. Yeah. Whether, whether you're going to crucify them or not. It's, t- it's just, yeah, no, I, no, yeah. No, no, no. No, thorns. No, Yeah, yeah, no. No, yeah. And there was whipping. There was whipping. Why whip? They whipped me, too. And there was so much, so much whipping. And the walk, they have... I had to carry it in the, the thorns. Art, the I was carrying them. And they had, yeah. they had me carry the thing. There were splinters, it's man. It's the photo. <laughs> There's crowns of, and the whipping and the mud and the... Wait, really, <laughs> what? Pi- any, piss. Any, what? any comments? What? What? About, uh, piss. Any comment? I was crucified. Moving on. A similar piece from the time was actually taken to court. Kind of. In the 1990 case, in the 1999 case, God, that's a hard year to say. 1999, um, in the 1999 case, uh, the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences versus the City of New York, the National Coalition Against Censorship, ND. I don't know what that means. Then, back then, Mayor of New York and future, um, interestingly controversial lawyer person, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, was offended by a painting by uh, Chris Olifi. Olifi? Olifi? O-L-I-F-I. It was included, the work was included in an exhibition at the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences, and it's entitled The Holy Virgin Mary, in which the media was, uh, that that the work was made with, was paint and elephant dung on canvas. elephant shit. However, the court ruled in the museum's favor, stating the government cannot suppress works said to be, quote, offensive, sacrilegious, morally improper, or dangerous, unquote, even in indirect ways. Uh, Most of that quote is from censorshipissues.wordpress.com. The underlying takeaway lesson from both Piss Christ and the Holy Virgin Mary controversies is, of course, If you want to make a quick statement, a quick name for yourself, and maybe turn a tiny profit, look no further than pissing off people of God and literally pissing on God, or at the very least shitting on or making his mother out of some kind of shit. 
that's a very stunted, misaligned, reductive, misconstrued way of looking at art and looking at things like that. But I had a chance to play with the words piss and shit. And damn it, when an opportunity like that arises, I'm going to take it. Even if I have to sling it in like fake bird ejecta in a John Cryer movie shoot. Bam! Ejecta and John Cryer's episode reference at the same time. I am on fire. Despite all the controversial art being produced at the time, galleries were moving a large amount of it. I don't want to say product, because that doesn't sound right. But they were selling many kilos of art, a lot of which was by contemporary artists. There was a slight drug spin in there. That's just me being stupid. Had nothing to do with drugs. Whether that's a product for a gallery or not, I'm not sure. The lingo of the art world is still pretty foreign to me. Really is. However, they were doing some pretty brisk business in the 90s and 2000s due to, as I mentioned before, the dot-com boom millionaires and the influx of foreign investors, too, who were flush with cash for various reasons. Of course, like the Gardner Museum robbery I mentioned earlier, not everyone was willing to play legal when trying to get at those, uh, what the, the kids call it, fat stacks? Do they still say that? How about paper? I heard that in a song my daughter was playing really loudly a while back, I think. It was only mentioned once, and it was uh, overshadowed by the interesting rhyme scheme used to spin a pretty descriptive yarn about fingering someone's ass. I think it might have been a love song. Regardless, around this time, a few dealers and galleries went a little rogue and or straight-up criminal when it came to getting some of that sweet, sweet cash flow. Then we played Bones, and I'm yelling Domino. Ah, Ice Cube, you sweet-spitting motherfucker. Holy fuck, I am so old. Today was a good day. Sorry. Sorry, I had a senior moment. It was one of those naughty galleries slash dealers slash mix of the two. Again, not really sure how it works. That really did some damage for the cabbage. I made that up, but I can hear that being a line in a 90s gangster rap. Cube, Cube, if you ever uh, need a few lines, maybe some quips. Or perhaps an ill-advised joke about Jesus' crucifixion, you know where to find me. Not really, of course. You have no idea who I am and are likely never to hear this. But in my head, imaginary you just thought about picking up his imaginary phone. So what was the illicit shit this gallery fucked with? Okay, that was a little forced. Um, They were up to selling fake shit for millions of dollars is what they did it for years until they got caught, too. And by years, I mean fucking decades. The early hot take so far? Uh, Fake art can be sold to buyers who may or may not know the difference, and you can do it for money and for longer periods of time than Easy e slanging crack for studio time. Boom! Another NWA member roped into this shit. Gotta catch them all like they're fucking 90s gangster rap Pokemon. Which, if you were to play, the rarest of them all would be... Huh? I saw you were thinking Dr. Dre. Sure. Sure, I like where your head is at. He's a brand name. Uh, he's got that Eminem thing going for him. A producer. He's making the beats. He's got that. But you're wrong, okay? The correct answer is, in fact, DJ Yella for the win. Thank you for playing. A little fun fact for you, by the way. I've officially gotten off track. Okay, back to the gallery. The Nodler and Company Gallery, which was located on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, opened in New York City in 1846. It was well-respected in New York and was in operation for over 100 years. It dealt with clientele from all over the world, and 
Nodler went into business almost a quarter of a century before the Metropolitan Museum of Art was founded, which I mention just to illustrate that it was open a long, long fucking time. Jesus got his paintings framed there. That's not true, but it was open a long-ass time. It began its life as a store that framed things and manufactured pictures. I don't know what the fuck that means, but that's what it did. Its existence predated the very idea of a storefront business that sold art. Did you get that? It was so damn old, it was an art gallery that existed before art galleries existed. Who knew art galleries had a chicken or the egg origin story? Which, if you didn't know, side note, neither the chicken nor the egg was quote-unquote first, according to scientists. It's true. Look it up. For a second there, I was going to do a your mama joke, and I have no, literally no idea why. It was, it, it was just a weird mental reflex. Like, neither the chicken nor the egg was first, according to scientists. Nope, it was your ugly fucking mother. See, that wasn't even a joke. It wasn't even funny. It's just, I I just had the urge to do a your mama thing in there for no fucking real reason. But just saying that last bit did satisfy the mental urge. So that's, I feel better. The Nodler Gallery would become a leading supplier of old master paintings to the robber barons of the Gilded Age, counting among its clients, Cornelius Vanderbilt, J.P. Morgan, and Henry Clay Frick. If you don't recognize those names, you probably failed U.S. history class. If indeed you had to take U.S. history. I'm looking at you, British listeners. For you, you should know that during the Industrial Revolution between 1870s through the early 1900s, those guys were stupidly rich industrialist pricks. Fucking rapping without even trying now. Record deal in the 1990s, here I come. The Nodler Gallery weathered 165 years of American history and changing tastes. And in 2011, that all imploded and it closed. Why? Because it couldn't weather the clusterfuck brought onto it by a woman from Long Island no one in the art world had ever heard of. A woman named Glafira Rosales. That's a neat name. She claimed to be an established Long Island art dealer when she strolled into the Nodler Nodler? See, I don't know if I'm... Nodler Gallery. She claimed to be an established Long Island art dealer when she strolled into the Nodler Gallery and met its director, Ann Friedman. Later, she pleaded guilty to charges of selling more than 60 fakes to the gallery, which then sold them to clients. Between 1994 and 2008, the year before Friedman, that uh, art director, the year before she quietly resigned, Rosales, with the alleged help of her boyfriend, Jose Carlos Bargani, oh my God, Jose Carlos Berganitos Diaz, I probably fucking said that way wrong, and his brother Jesus and Pai Shen Qian, a Chinese immigrant living in Queens. They conducted an $80 million forgery ring through the Nodler selling or consigning 40 expertly crafted counterfeits. It turns out that all those paintings they sold in the gallery they claim to be works by de Kooning, Pollock, Motherwell, and Rothko, artwork that sold for at least $60 million. They were all made by Pai Chen Qian. I'm saying that wrong, I, I imagine. He was a 73-year-old Chinese painter in Queens. There's much speculation as to whether Anne Friedman was involved, the director lady. Um, it's a focal point, actually, of another docuseries about the crime that's on Netflix, which is really good. I binged it not too long ago and thought it was interesting as fuck. The experts uh, involved in authenticating the fake paintings, backpedaling, is some of a, some chef's kiss worthy kind of shit. 
Watch it if you can. The whole ordeal was during the same time period that a an object of beauty takes place in. That whole series has got a mystery vibe to it, and it gets gets into a lot more details of the crime. Check it out if you have Netflix. Who I swear to God isn't paying me to talk about it, but damn it, I wish they would. Netflix, if you're listening, I'm willing to take your money and whore myself to pimp your content for the right price. Or any price, really. I'll work cheap. No kidding. Give me a call. You can get my number from Ice Cube. So for me, an object of beauty wasn't what I thought it was. And it turned out to be, uh, as some books often do, a book that actually sparked a curiosity and a deep dive uh, into finding out more about some other aspect of the book than was intended. That happens sometimes. I'll get into a book and really like the peripherals or the background or uh, little bits and facts that are sprinkled throughout the book. And I'll really get into those instead of the meat of the thing that was intended. There's nothing wrong with that. That's uh, That doesn't mean that it's a bad book, just that I got something different than what was intended out of it. You know, It's beautifully written. It really is. There's an entire 9-11 in New York thing uh, about the art world collapse after 9-11, Seriously, it's a good book. It's 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 well written. Which sounds like that old, you know, is she pretty? Ah, she's got a great personality. And it sounds like I'm doing that to describe a bad book, but it's not. I liked it, but because it got me thinking about an entertaining tangent rather than the story itself. Fuck. Fuck. Well, I mean, what do I know though? I mean, I mean, maybe maybe that was Steve Martin's intention all along, right? I mean, was it Steve? I Ladies and gentlemen, uh, to discuss his book, An Object of Beauty, the gloriously funny, charismatic, genius comedy god. Uh, he's been waiting patiently, um, which thank you, by the way. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Steve Martin. Uh, go ahead, Steve. Oh, shit. Hold on. Uh, sorry. I, uh, I muted. The, hold on. The, the mic. Hold on. <laughs> Didn't I have any of you fooled that time? <laughs> I tried to sell it. I really did. Can you imagine if I landed Steve Martin for this? <laughs> I got him to come on to this extremely unknown buried in the charts podcast. My God, how spectacular would that be? I mean, I mean, we'd chat a while about his book, you know, and then we'd like, you know, luck, luck onto some topic that we both found fascinating. How art I mean, we both like art. And then, uh, then you know, and then we get into it, it gets a little deeper. Maybe time goes on too long. Then we, then we, you know, then maybe we agree to meet up later. We're like, we'll talk later, which then we follow up on. And then, you know, maybe that leads to more talking and more topics and, and more follow-ups. And then boom, boom, best fucking friends. And then years go by. And, uh, you know, there's a sequel maybe to Three Amigos. It's written and and, it, and the cat, it's cast and it's shooting. And yeah, my buddy, Steve, he calls me up and he, he asked me to do a cameo. And you know, maybe the, and I, there's a desert scene and we're in sombreros. And, and as a brilliantly, brilliantly written scene ends, I, I improv a line uh, that's so on point, the crew only manages to hold back laughter long enough for the director to yell cut. And then they just break up. And, you know, you know, but me, I'm, I'm not I'm not seasoned at this. So I'm unsure of whether my improv was the right thing to do. And, you know, the crew is still laughing and. And Steve, you know, being the seasoned vet, he sees my uneasy expression and, and he reassuringly, you know, he pats me on the shoulder, maybe. And he's like, you know, great line, kid. And I'm like, you know, thanks. Thanks. I, you know, I, uh, nervously. And, I, you know, I wasn't sure if I, uh, I should have said anything. But I, I saw an opening and I figured, what the hell, you know? <laughs> sure. 
Sure, he says. You know, sometimes that's that's when the best stuff happens. You think? I you know, I say back to him. He's like, Oh no, no, no. Oh no, kid. I know. And do you know why? And I say to him, it, huh, it's because you've been you've been doing this forever and you're you're amazing. And Steve looks at me and he says, No. No. It's because um, I'm a fucking genius, a genius, Mensa in the house. I'm smarter than you, him, her, them, all of them, all of you. My brain is doing things right now that would make your fucking monkey pee brain shit its monkey pee brain pants. But brains don't wear pants. You know how I know? Shh. Don't answer. It's rhetorical. It's because I'm a fucking genius, a genius. I'm going to my trailer to finish my PhD. Fuck all of you. Ology. <laughs> White-haired comedy god genius out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Elton Reads a Book a Week. If you like what you heard, please consider contributing to it via Patreon or this podcast, Anchor.fm page. You'll be part of uh, getting the podcast made and get extras uh, along with it, extra episodes and whatnot. I'm working on a, a true crime book that has a bunch of true crimes in it that I'm thinking of breaking up into episodes and putting it on Patreon. Anyway. That's an idea. That's what I'll be doing. Uh, so if you want to contribute, uh, those are the places you can do that. Huh? Uh, Patreon and Anchor.fm. And uh, and make sure to uh, follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. There's a TikTok. YouTube, Facebook, all of them. Just search for Elton Reads a Book a Week and it'll pop up. All right. And you can also email me at Elton Reads a Book a Week at Gmail. That's all one word at Gmail.com. Uh, Elton Reads a Book a Week at Gmail.com. That's and uh, I'll answer any questions or inquiries or whatever you might have. You know, let's become friends, you and I. All right? Yeah. Oh, and sharing the podcast also helps. Growing the audience means there's a better chance for advertisers, which means I might one day be able to do this all the time. Wouldn't that be fun for me? So if you know anyone that likes to hear a guy cursing while name-dropping 90s gangster rappers during an informative discussion about Steve Martin and the New York art world – Amongst other things, send them this way. Above all else, though, thank you so very much for listening. I honestly appreciate it. I really do. That, you know, someone takes the time to listen to my madness. It means a lot. And uh, one last thing before we part, my friend. We read a book this week. We'll try to start one. You do a little reading this week. From a book. Especially from a book. Okay? Don't let him die. Thank you.